If you're a slave to sin, you're either deceived as to your salvation or you're deceived as to what you are in Christ as a Christian. In either case, you're not where you should be. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. In this lesson from Romans 5.20 to 6.7, Joe has examined the believer's identification with Christ and the holy life before God that results. Before we begin this lesson, we want to offer our listeners discipleship and counseling from Joe or his associates. If you feel the need to talk about your faith in Christ or the faith you desire to have, let us know. Send us an email about your concerns and someone will be sure to get back to you. Now for today's lesson entitled, Freed from Sin. Dear Heavenly Father, your word is the bread of life. There is truth in your word as there is truth in you. You have inspired the word. You've used men. But what comes from you is what is matters. You are the bread of life. You are the manner that comes down from heaven. I pray, dear Father, that all the hearers might understand, might begin to grasp the truth as it is written in your word. Your word is truth. Glorify your word. May we together glorify you in the reading and understanding of scripture and as we by the grace given to us in the Holy Spirit respond to that which comes from your word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For this message, we'll be reading from Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, and then Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness, to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. May God add the blessing of the reading of his word. So in the, in the last episode, we, our focus was on the two races of planet Earth from Romans chapter 5. The first race results from one fallen man and woman into sin, conceiving a race of sinners. The second race is the result of one man born of a virgin and conceived by the Holy Spirit of God so that he was holy man and God so that he might give his life as an offering to God for the sins of men, of faith whom he would deliver. Chapter 5 concludes with verses 20 and 21. The law came in so that the offense would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, so also grace would reign through righteousness 
to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is what prompts Paul to go into Romans chapter 6 with this question, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Why is he doing that? Well, there is an important reality that the law that every man needs to understand, the law has the ability to enlighten men to God's moral standards. However, it is unable to empower men to keep its standards. So there's this, this pull, that, if you will, where men are brought into the reality of God's standards, his demands as a righteous, the righteous and holy God of the universe, the source of life, the reality of his moral standards. We live on earth and we're blinded to sin. Sin has taken over who we are and our character and our nature. But yet there are these elements that remain that make us in the image of God. And I want to look at that briefly as we catch up to where Paul is. So there is this reality about the law. And therefore, Paul teaches us the law was given so that men's consciences would be enlarged to better discern good from evil. And therefore, he says, the offense would increase. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. And what's that mean? Well, that means that people are, we live in the dark. We live in the dark as to our own sinful nature, our mind, our attitude, our motives, our will, the, the, the choices we make, all of it. You know, we, 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 we get in our hearts and in our minds, there's this conscience that pricks us, but it either gets diluted because of culture, because of the flesh that's in us that is just prone to do evil, do what we want to do. And then uh, the, God's law comes along, and all of a sudden the law begins to just explode in our minds and hearts when you read it, and you just can't believe you know, that God would demand such things. Like, love your neighbor as yourself. That if you commit adultery, it's like, it's like actually in your heart, in your mind, it's actually the act of the right, the sin of it. If, if you hate a person, it's like killing a person. I mean, my goodness, I mean, the law is so strict. Grace, however, is far more potent than sin. Therefore, where sin increased, he says, grace abounded all the more. So the gospel comes in and says, well, Jesus Christ died to sin so that by grace he might save people from his demands, these high standard. So sin reigned in death, he says. It, was, it sat upon the throne and ruled, telling men what to do and making them its slave. So we're born in this position where our hearts are evil, and the sin is sitting on the throne and it's ruling. Men are enslaved to sin. This is the way we're born into the race of Adam. No matter how aware that we all are of it, we're enslaved to it. Grace, however, reigns to eternal life through righteousness. Now, Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Paul does not say sin reigns through sin. No, no, it reigns through grace. Grace is the victor over sin and the death that results. This is, the, this is the gospel message, the, the message between grace and sin, law and its righteous demands, and grace through the forgiveness and the love and the mercy of Christ, of God in Christ. As Paul progresses through the letter, let's go back to chapter 1. We'll just think through it for a minute, if you will, with me. He takes this hard stand on the truth. And the truth can be very a hard thing to hear sometimes. You know, it, it, it can make us look at ourselves in a way that we, we never saw ourselves before. So in chapter 1, he begins with this message where man sins against reason. Man says in his mind, 
He makes he makes God in his image. He cuts down a tree. He he fashions it into some to some animal or something or himself as man. And he says this is God. And then he puts my thoughts in God's head. And and that in that way he's making God in his image so he can live according to his standards and he can be okay with himself. He says there is no God. He says, you know, it's just evolution. And everything just happened. And the preciseness of this universe just came into being. And the energy and the laws of nature and the fine-tunedness of a planet that spins without wobbling and the mountain weights and all of, all of this fantastic from the, the largeness of the universe to the interest, to the to tininess, you know, of microscopic things. You know, all of this is just a gigantic accident. You know, he just, he, he makes philosophies, you know, to satisfy himself. Like there is no eternal God. There's no source of all things, which is the only way to make sense. So he sins against reason in a, in a multitude of ways. Then he goes on in chapter two and he makes man, he, he tells us that man sins against conscience. He has a conscience. He has, you know, he comes up with laws lo- long before Moses and, and, the, and the law given us by God. Why? Because he has a conscience. Just, you know, there's been books written about how far back man goes. You, you have this idea of, of law. Because it exists in every one of us. We have to put it to death. We have to harden our hearts, which man does after a time. So first, man sins against reason. Then man sins against conscience. We all, we all do it. I mean, we can deny it. We can say we're perfect. We're good. We know all men sin. And then man sins against God's law, which really points the picture at us that sin is really in our hearts against God. We want to be told what to do. We want to know that we're God in our own right. And this is why the nations rage. This is why men take positions of authority and they rule whatever part of the earth they can. And everyone wants to be God of the whole entire earth. Only some men, you know, attain, you know, to doing that, the Napoleons and the Hitlers and the men. And we see what they do with it. They just corrupt to mat to the max and they rule with an iron hand and they put people to death and it's just it's been misery for six thousand years. And so you you have man sinning against God, which climaxes climaxes at Calvary, at Jerusalem, where God walks among men for three years, healing proclaiming the truth like men have never heard and they can't take it. And he stirs up the religion of the world where it's focused this, this, this idea that there is a God and that we have a conscience and we have the law of God and it's been handed down and these religious men see the truth staring them in the face and they hate it so much they have to nail them, have the Romans nail them to a wooden cross. And there's where it climaxes what the heart of man really looks like. It looks like someone who wants to put God to death. God just allowed it to happen, planned it to happen, so that we would look in the mirror, when we read the word of God, we would look in the mirror of history, and we would see that this Jesus Christ died on a cross. The, the greatest historical fact by every, all the historians, uh, secular alike, you know, that this is a fact that took place in history. Jesus Christ went to the cross. He was raised from the dead. No one wants to believe it. Everyone wants to ridicule. They use Jesus Christ as a curse word. It just further asserts the fact that all of this is true and what the heart of men look like. And this is not just to condemn men. This is to give men hope. This is what the, the church is meant to look like. It's meant to look like a host of people who came under the reality of this truth, convicted of sin, repented, saw in their souls the wickedness that was there in light of the shadow of the cross on which they stand, and in the shadow of the death of Christ, they repent of their sins, they come to faith in Christ, they are transformed, redeemed, 
born again, and they go about proclaiming a message to a people who don't want to hear it and put them to death. Because they look at the Christian, the transformed person, the one who's changed and is changing, and they look at him and they say, who do you think you are? You think you're better than me? When the reality is, the true Christian knows the reality of their own soul and that if it were not for Jesus Christ, they would go to hell and they would they would actually deserve every minute of it. I mean, I know that's the condition of my soul apart from Jesus Christ. And every Christian in the depths of their soul know that's exactly where they stand. Now, Paul then moves on and he begins to look at the fact of how the Christian is to look at this reality. And he says in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, that's what it does, the wages of sin is death, we, we learned in Romans, and therefore, as sin reigned in death, telling men what to do, and the result of it was death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. Now, the righteousness is the righteousness through Jesus Christ, but there is an identity that takes place, an identification that takes place. And that's what Romans 5 is about. So as men are identified in Adam because we're a race, and we pass it on from one generation to the next, and each generation takes up their own cause, they make their own moral choices. There is this condemnation before God, but the condemnation is somehow related to the fact that we, as we grow up, we make up our own mind and we make our own moral choices and we condemn ourselves. Yes, it's passed on, but there's still this reality of responsibility that each one of us has and each one of us takes to ourselves when we make choices that are evil and sinful against reason, against conscience, and against the law. So identification is clear, and, and, and if you listen to my message or if you read commentaries that are accurate according to Romans chapter 5, you understand there's identification in Adam, and there's identification in Christ, and men have the possibility of being moved from Adam in condemnation to Jesus Christ in righteousness, forgiveness, and glory. So therefore, righteousness... We reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, having said that, it's grace that reigns. Now, when grace reigns, that means that it's something that's not earned or deserved. It's something that's given as a gift. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not earned. You don't pay for a gift. It's given you. You receive it. You got it. And you don't do anything for it. Not only that... At this point, you understand that you can't meet the demands of reason. You can't meet the demands of conscience. You certainly can't meet the demands of God's law. And so in this way, it's given, it's a gift, you can't earn it, and okay, I'm clear. At that point, sinful nature can kick in and say, well, I'll live however I want, I'll be saved by grace. Paul, understanding that was coming, he's seeing that ahead of time, he then lays out this statement from Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Let's magnify grace. Let's just sin and show just how gracious God is. But that's not his answer. No, rather in verse 2 he says, may it never be. It's like a strongest way he could say this in the Greek language. May it never be. God forbid such a thing. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? I mean, he's asking a question, but he doesn't expect an answer. He's giving this statement. May it never be. God forbid such a thing. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, placed into Christ. And baptism is a symbol. It's a symbol of being submersed into the, which it means, into the water. You go down into the water. We go down into Christ. 
Do you not know that all of us who have been placed into Christ, Jesus, have been baptized, placed into his death? Now, there's an identity there that puts our sins, so to speak, to death. They are covered by the blood of Christ. They are forgiven. They are removed. All of this is taking place in a, not a symbolic way, a very real way. When Christ died on the cross, he experienced the death. He experienced the punishment. He's the son of God. You have to understand this. He's the eternal God. He's eternal son when there was no time. It's hard to conceive of these things, but we need to think about it. Because as Christ died on the cross, and I can't explain this, no person can, in, on this earth can comprehend it, he, uh, on the cross, entered into an eternal place. Now, does it clearly state this in Scripture? Am I somehow stepping a little bit outside? Kind of. But if you think with me, if a person were to die in their sins, they face an eternity in hell from which they will never escape. Now, you can think what you want, but there are so many sufficient scriptures throughout the New Testament stated by Jesus himself. You know, where the the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched ever. Man is cast into the lake of fire, which will burn forever. Why? Well, number one, man will never repent. And where there is no repentance, there can be no forgiveness. Where the blood is not applied, where the sacrifice of Christ is not does not happen in place of men, where men are not placed into Christ, where the forgiveness takes place, there is only an eternal judgment. Um, it's a hard thing to comprehend. It's a hard thing to understand. People say, how can a loving God do that? Well, we want to stop for a minute. We want, we want to understand that God is perfectly holy and just in an infinite way. We don't understand infinite. We're finite. We understand being in one place at one time. We understand being in one minute at one time. We can't understand going back in time. We can't understand going forward in time. We're stuck in this place. Because we're stuck in this place, we should not ridicule what the Word of God says and say these things cannot be. What we need to do is, and this is what the child of God does, or should do, is humble oneself to say, I can't comprehend these things, but I understand that God is true and he's not a liar. I understand that he's perfectly holy and righteous. I understand it in the demands of the law. I understand it in the perfection of the Word of God. I understand these things to be true. I believe them to be true in my heart because he's given me a new heart. And that's what the Christian does. And therefore, he says, I can't, stand, I can't understand eternity. I can't comprehend it. can't wrap my mind around it. But I understand this, that God is holy and is true and this has actually taken place. So God, who has the capability of eternity, he, his, his place is in an, in an eternal state. He made time for us. He made this transition of time where there's change. He, God is unchanging. That's one of his names, Shua, in the Old Testament. He's unchanging. He's the same. It means the same. There's no shifting shadows. There's no change. There's no, he's always been perfect. He's always been infinite. He's always been perfectly righteous and holy. That's the state of God. And he did it in, in an eternal state. So therefore, as God, he could enter into that eternal state and he could suffer the sins for an eternity for people who would otherwise pay that price. It's the only way that, the only thing that makes sense. If we were not redeemed, we would spend eternity in hell. What's the price? The price then is, is eternal. We will spend eternally a place with Christ in a righteous, holy life. That's the position of the Christian. He's identified with Christ in righteousness because that price has been paid. Now you want to talk about the love of God, you look at what the Father had to do to the Son in an eternal state of perpetual suffering. 
I can't comprehend it. It doesn't matter. It's true. It's the only way that man's sins, eternal punishment, would be paid for. How does an eternally righteous God who hates sin, he who knew no sin, the scripture says, became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How does a righteous God become sin in order to pay the price? The father looking on the son as if he had committed those sins even though he was and is eternally holy and unchanging and perfect. And it's in this in eternal condition. I point out these things to understand at least understand, not comprehend, the complexity and the extent to which God went to love those upon whom he would place his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. This is solemn. It's serious. It takes a quiet spirit to consider these things and humble ourselves and recognize what's placed upon us. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. We can't take his yoke as he did, but we can look into the word of God and we can say it's true. And in that way, we can take his yoke upon ourselves and we can cry a little. We can humble ourselves a little. We can admire and honor and glorify God as much as placed within ourselves and say, God, thank you for saving my soul. Thank you for sacrificing your son. Thank you, Lord, for being willing to be beaten by a father that you love so dearly. You only wanted to please, and yet you were willing to look in his eyes as the sin that you so vehemently hate. I can't. We can't comprehend these things, but we, we need to consider them. And if you're not in Christ, and if you can't wrap your mind around it, you need to say, God, help me to see these things to the saving of my soul. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. To the church member, to the person who is in Christ, to the person who's been saved and professes salvation in Christ, to this person he needs to understand that to the extent that you believe these things to be so, to the extent that you take this truth into your heart, and you accept them as true, then you must read it the way it is written. Therefore we have been buried, in verse 4, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. You know, we, we read through the scriptures, and if you're at any time, and we'll get there eventually, get to Romans chapter 7. We love to, we don't love it, we hate it if you're a Christian in good standing, but you still wrap your mind around the idea. And in that passage, 7 14 to 25, you know, it talks about this residual of sin that sits upon us and weighs us down and causes us to sin so that we're not perfect. And in that, we find all this imperfection, and I can't be a righteous sinner, and we kind of let things go. Well, you know, I'm going to be a sinner. Yeah, that's not the way to approach these passages, and it's not the way to approach the Scripture, and it's certainly not the way to approach life if, you, if we are a Christian. It's easy to do. I've certainly done it myself. Every Christian has. But we, we need to make sure that we're not allowing the devil to run our minds so that the emphasis is not where it belongs. And that's what we're talking about. Is the emphasis in the other portions of Scripture, like this one, which talks about being raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, where is the emphasis 
on the fact that we cannot do it, which the scripture does not say we cannot do it. It's just that there's a monkey on our back keeping us down somewhat. But here in 6 and through 7, and in certainly in 8, so we too might walk in newness of life. And he goes on, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, listen, certainly we, we shall also be in his resurrection. And he's not talking about future only. Of course, it'll be brought to perfection in the future. He's talking now. He's talking now. He says, we shall also be in, in, in his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. He's not talking a language of perfection. He's talking a, a, a language of direction. But he's more than that, he's talking a language of sanctification, of transformation. He's talking that as we apply these truths in faith to our life, we take on the reality of this faith and we live to a level of righteousness and holiness we never would conceive possible. Because that's the language here. No longer slaves. Let me ask you, if you're a church member, if you're really born again, if you believe yourself to be born again, I'm going to ask you, are you a slave to sin? If you're a slave to sin, you're either deceived as to your salvation or you're deceived as to what you are in Christ as a Christian. In either case, you're not where you should be. You're either unsaved and you're headed towards hell and destruction and you need to cast those sins on the cross to Christ and be forgiven. Or else you've been forgiven and you're believing a lie and you're still remaining a slave to sin. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now there in verse 7 is a magnificent verse. A magnificent thought. For he who has died is freed from sin. Well, I'm not dead yet. Well, no, you're not physically dead. No, you haven't passed from this life, if you're a Christian, from death to life. But I'll tell you what, in the mind and heart of God, where it really, where it really matters, the Christian passes from death to life. He's placed into Christ. God regenerates the heart and the mind and the will and he makes a new man. We are a new creation in Christ. The Bible says all things have passed away. All things have become new. Now is that something that we grasp it with both hands and we're not going to let this go. We're going to grasp it with our heart and all our mind and all our strength and we're not going to let this go no matter what lie comes our way. We're going to say within ourselves, this scripture is, is true. He who has died is freed from sin. Does that mean I'm, I'm perfect and without sin? Absolutely not. But there's a huge difference between not being perfect and being freed from sin. Being freed from sin means I can do what I want to do. I'm freed. I'm not chained to it. I, haven't, I have no, like, I have no rights and I can't do what I want. And my master tells me what to do and it tells me to sin. It tells me to lust. It tells me to be proud. It tells me to be jealous and angry. It tells me to do everything that breaks the law of God. It tells me to hate God by ignoring his word. None of those things are true for the true Christian, for the authentic Christian. None of them are true. In fact, just the opposite. The true Christian can say, I don't have to do anything that the devil wants me to do. I don't have to do anything the world tells me to do. I don't have to do anything even my own flesh tells me to do. I can tell what the whole I can do what the Holy Spirit tells me to do. Therefore, I can spend time in prayer. I can spend time in the word. 
I can spend time dwelling on the word and the promises and the hope and all of the New Testament meat that tells me that I am born again and in Christ and freed from sin and I can live a holy and a righteous life regardless of everything around me, the environment, the culture, whether it's in the world or in the church. It's because some of the culture in the church is from the world and it's not right. I can identify these things and I can reprove these things and I, and I can remove myself and I can be freed from these things. Why? God says so. I mean, if Romans chapter 6 is true, and it is, if, if Paul is making an argument and saying, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. God forbid. What shall, how shall we who died to sin live in it? Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. We can do these things. And we can do it because we're attached to a person. This is a creed. This is a teaching. This is a reality of what God says. But this teaching is connected to a person. It's connected to the person of God in the person of Jesus Christ who is both God and man. And he understands our state not only because he's God, but because he's a man. And as a high priest as the professor of our, who understands the condition of our, 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 our sinfulness and our redemption, he rescues us from our sin and he, deliver us, he delivers us through the promises that he made, which means that we live by faith. For the righteous shall live by faith. We take God at his word, we take him at his promises, and we live accordingly. Now, the church sometimes gets wrapped up in the ways of the world, and I want to just make a point as we head towards the conclusion of this. And I want to take it from Genesis chapter, turn to it real quick, Genesis chapter 18. And here in Genesis chapter 18 is this unbelievable passage where... Abram is being given a promise of Isaac. He's going to be given a son, which eventually he'll take up on a mountain and he's willing to put to death. And God holds his hand back and says, no, 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 I got somebody else in view for this, but I wanted to test and see if you really loved me. And so he was willing to sacrifice his own son through whom all the promises would come, believing that God would raise him from the dead. It's a great picture. And so here he's going to be born. And so the angel of the Lord, which is a pre-incarnate Christ, appears with two other angels. And we read in verse 9, Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, There in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now he asked where he was, Abraham knew where she was, and they were, she was there in, in, in ear distance of hearing what is being said. And he's saying it for Abraham, but he's also saying it for Sarah. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Uh, my Lord being old also is Abraham. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Now she said this to herself, but of course the Lord knew what was in her heart and in her mind. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Now this is true in the case that we're talking about, because right now the point of the message is, which we need to take to heart, is God telling the truth or is he telling a lie is he exaggerating are we you know it's easy to say well you know that's your interpretation well the words are plain they're clear they're true you know we like different interpretations so we can make it say what we want but i've just gone through the very clarity just of the passage and here the lord said to abraham and this is what we do why did sarah laugh saying shall i indeed bear a son where i am when I am so old. He just said she was. 
This is what happens in the Word of God. God says something, and then we say, how's that going to happen? Well, that can't be true. I'm not perfect. I'm still a sinner. But the words come to us, is anything too difficult for the Lord? And we're not talking about us. We're not talking about what we can do or we can't do. We're not talking about whether we can stop sinning. We're talking about what God said he did in Christ and what he can do right now. That's what we're talking about. At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Then the, more, then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. I want you to understand something. Sarah laughed within her heart. She laughed and she denied what God had said. There was three, there was two angels, and there was a pre-incarnate Christ from the word of his name, which is Lord, which is Adonai, which is God. The the word never calls angels Adonai or my master. There's one master, there's one Lord, as we read it in English, and that Lord or Adonai is God. And he said this to her. And he was was not going to let her get away with it for her own good and for the fact that when you let people get away with it, you become like them. You take part in their sin. God does not take part in sin. And he tells us the truth. He tells us the truth out of love. He tells us the truth for our own good. And he tells us the truth because he can't lie and because he can't be part of sin. And that's the place that the church has to take. The church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. When we take part in the sins of the culture, of the world around us, of the nations, which is particularly um, apropos in our present moment of time, in our culture, in the world, I might add, then we take part in that sin. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. When the world says this or that, when the world says Christianity is bunk, when the devil says you have to sin, you're a slave to sin, it is the Christian's place. It is the, child, the place of the child of God to say, I did laugh. I'm prone to laugh. I'm afraid to tell the truth. I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid of the world, maybe. I'm afraid of the devil. I'm afraid of whatever. And in fear, there is no love. Love casts out fear, the Bible says. And so what do we love? We love the Lord. We love God. We love the one who gave himself for us so that we might be freed from sin. We love him because he first loved us. You see, the the word of God is attached to a person. We're not just believing a teaching. The, The religions of the world are just like that. All of them. The cults within Christianity, anti Christian religions, sects, all of these divisions, all of this 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 religion religion without God, all of it denies the truth. All of it banters about, but it accommodates the world. It loves the world. The world loves it, even if they deny it because, well, it's religion. And they can either make fun of it and say it's not true and look at the way they live and deny it, and it gives them freedom of conscience or so they think, or else they embrace it. They make God in their own image And they don't have to believe the truth. And God says, no, but you did laugh. No, you did make fun of the truth. You made fun of what I said. You made fun of the gospel. And the last thing the church needs to do is take part in such folly. 
such foolishness. We need to look into our own hearts and into our own souls, and we have to say to ourselves, are we taking part in this? Are we going hand in hand with the world? Are we agreeing with the world? Or are we trusting in what has God has said through what God has written? Are we trusting the blood of the writers of the Bible, so many which suffered at the hands of the world through the death, through their own death? Isaiah, just as an example, thrown, stuck into a, the hollow of a tree and cut in half because they hated him so much because he spoke the truth because he prophesied of Christ to come, of all men. You know, just read Isaiah 53. You understand, you know, that it was a gospel. It was the gospel of Christ. Just read it. What it talks about Christ. He was believing in Christ. He, was, he didn't understand like we do today, but he was believing in what Christ said. We, we believe today, and we don't, can't wrap our minds around God. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that we trust in what God has said. Let the world laugh. Let us be serious. The time is short when no man is coming, when no man can work. Let us walk in the light while there is light. Uh, The world's coming to a quick end. It may be a lot quicker than some of us believe. None, None of us know exactly when, but... And it's looked this way before, but it looks more this way even now. Israel's never been in the land before. In the last 2,000 years, this is the only time that Israel's been in the land. And in case you don't understand this, Israel is the main point of prophecy. It's all through the Old Testament prophets. Uh, It's all through the New Testament. Israel, and by the way, is not just individual people, it's a nation. Largely lost, only individuals are saved. It's true, but that's true of the church as well. The vast majority of the church is lost. Only individuals within the church are saved. It's always that. It's always a remnant. It's always a few. That doesn't mean the church doesn't exist, you know, (laughs) under the umbrella of Christianity. There are many who are going to hell from the pew, or now the, the chair. You know, there are many who are going to hell you know, in, in Israel, under the law. But there are true Jews as well who are the remnant. It's always been that way. It'll always be that way. But God has the right to choose who goes to heaven, who has eternal life, and he did that in Israel. He called out a people from Abraham, and every one of the seed of Abraham is a Jew, is an Israelite, is a Hebrew, but only the remnant is saved, just as in the church. I mean, you just have to be reasonable. There are people within the church, God bless their soul, and some will be spending eternity in heaven, and they say the most ridiculous things, like there's no such thing as a Jew. Really? We need to see the word for what it says, because as we do as a church, we'll all get together. So many deceptions, so much people, so many people laughing. They laugh at other people when other people really get it, about this or that doctrine, and they're wrong, and they're laughing. And we all do it to one extent or another, and the key in the Christian life is to give up all the false prophecy, all the untruth, all the falsehoods, so that we can come together and the world can look at us and they can see that we're one. Because that's what Jesus said. They will understand by the love that you have for one another. In your unity, in your oneness, They will believe that the Father has sent me. John chapter 17. Is there unity in the church that's shattered into a thousand pieces? Oh my. And it's always going to be there as long as people are laughing to themselves and saying this cannot be. No, it has to be the way that I say. It can't be the way that Christ said it. Well, we have to conclude this message from Romans chapter 5, 20 and 21. Romans 6, 1 through 7. And we'll pick it up Uh, the next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who hear this message. As they consider the truth of the Word of God, they may be prone, may be tempted to laugh to themselves about the things they hear. I ask that you would humble them 
allow them to see what the truth of the word of God says, and then to, to humbly submit and to either say, Lord God, I'm a sinner and I need salvation and to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, something that is so far beyond them they could never accomplish it in their own efforts. Or as a Christian, if they're walking, believing in all the lies that they sin and, and at the same time making excuses and thinking because of you know, their emotions and some charismatic belief of apostolic gifts or in some over-reasoning intellectualism that just believes by the seriousness of the doctrines they believe that's making them holy and going to one or two extremes or three and in these ways not understanding that it's identification with Christ that matters. It's it's taking him at his word and believing the truth that, Lord, you speak the truth and you mean these things for our, our love, our faith, our unity with all the brethren, our, our humility so that we don't look down at others but actually count others more important than ourselves. Lord, that can only happen at the cross when we believe that our sins were washed away and put to death sunk into the sea of forgetfulness in Christ so that we might be raised in newness of life and we might walk righteous before you, putting to death our own desires and, 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 and I can't even think of the word, but that, that propensity that we have to walk in the flesh. Lord, when you put that to death and you just give us newness of life where we walk by faith, this is what matters. Lord, grant faith to all the hearers of this message of Romans 5 and 6. Grant us faith to trust in the word for what it says and to walk in newness of life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.